Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to The Checkout. It's a podcast that you should subscribe to if you're a music fan, jazz lover, like myself. Produced at WBGO Studios. All of our shows archived on our homepage at checkoutjazz.org. I'm Simon Rettner. Well, we had ambitious plans today. This year marks Pi Recording's 20th anniversary, and to celebrate, we invited the two men responsible behind the label, Seth Rosner and Yulun Wang, to talk about many of their dynamic artists across the spectrum featured on Pi. New recordings from Anna Weber and Matt Mitchell, for instance. But what we found was there just wasn't enough time. But naturally, as our conversation unfolded, it steered toward the legends in the music. Specifically, an unruly, forward-thinking bunch from the south side of Chicago, members of the AACM, the Association of the Advancement of Creative Musicians. So I guess the multi-instrumentalist and author George Lewis proved his point again. The sounds of Henry Threadgill, Muhal Richard Abrams, and the Art Ensemble of Chicago are a power stronger than itself. Power Stronger Than Itself is the name of the book written about the AACM, in case you're interested. So perhaps we can have Seth and Yulun back to talk about all the other music that they have on their website, if you go to their website, pyrecordings.com. But in the meantime, right now you're listening to a brand new release celebrating their 20th anniversary. Georgia Ann Muldrow remixing Henry Threadgill's ensemble Double Up Plus this tune called Clear and Distinct. Let's listen to that before we speak to the label mates. simplest terms, I feel like Pi Recordings is a label with a critical ear. And you guys are celebrating its 20th anniversary, so congratulations. Thank you. A massive milestone. The dynamic duo behind the label, Seth Rosner, Yulun Wang. Thank you both. 20 years of making music. That makes me smarter somehow. That's, a, that's what it feels like. 
<laughs> we want to inform you. We want to inform you. Because that's what I honestly felt in college. I'm listening to jazz. I'm getting smarter. Did you guys ever have that thought? Uh, I've never had that thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I've spent the past 20 years being like, I got to get smarter. And I am really just not figuring this out. I would say that as a label, we're not cowled by people who are smart. As a matter of fact, we embrace people who are brilliant. Um, and I think that uh, trying to deal with people who are brilliant is often not easy. But you know, people come to us with all kinds of crazy ideas, super complicated ideas, and you know, we always go along. Um, as a matter of fact, we we embrace it. Um, and I think that maybe that's what makes us a little bit different than some other labels, is that the things that are super complex just somehow appeal to us just a little bit more. We'll get right into it, maybe with the poster child of your label being celebrated this year, 2021 NEA Jazz Master. Congratulations, Henry. Henry Threadgill.
So we got Henry Threadgill, Zuid, Up Pop, The Two Lips, Tickled Pink, released in 2001. So Seth, you were working at the, the Knitting Factory, factory yep. at the time. And I think that I, that's when I actually saw this band. Oh, um, okay. So when I first began speaking to Henry, Make a Move was really his band. And they would have like a week at the Knitting Factory every year. And I would just look forward to that week. You know, five straight nights of Threadgill, Make a Move, Electric, Brandon Ross, J.T. Lewis, Stomo Takeshi. Uh, it, it was amazing. You know, it, it was crazy. I somehow, just fell into conversation with Henry to, to document him. He hadn't he hadn't done anything since uh, the last Sony recording, which was the first Make a Move recording. Where's your cup? And I five think, years yeah, before. Five years before. So there's a, there's a pretty big dormant period. I left out Tony Cedrus. I, I should have said Tony Cedrus was in that band. And I said, you know, you want to record? And he said, absolutely, absolutely. So in, in my mind, we're going in to record and make a move. You know, that, that's what I think we're doing. And then he said, yeah, no, no, we're, we're going to record. We're, we're, we're going to record and make a move. And we're recording a new band I have called Zoomid. He was transitioning to, I don't want to overcomplicate it, but essentially a new musical system. But you actually kind of hear it if you pay attention to Henry Threadgill's discography. There is this split where you feel like these new systems are basically being employed. How did he describe these new systems to you? Uh, I went to his house, and Henry's got a piano. He writes on piano a lot, and he sat down, and he said, you know, I'm going to move a little bit away away from Western Harmony. You know, I, I've done a lot with that, and I, you know, I, th I, th I think I've explored that to the point where my interests now are elsewhere. So I'm going to start moving into what at that time was being called sort of the orbit system. So there was this concept of there's a, there's a center, and there are these tones around the center that are separated by intervals, etc. And I'm going to, and at that time, my recollection, it was called the orbit system. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, let me show you. And he would say, you hear this? That sounds right, right? You hear that? That's correct? And, you know, Henry's just, no matter what instrument Henry touches, the guy sounds great. The guy's, guy plays hubcaphones, and he sounds fantastic. I mean, I'm like, yeah, that sounds totally correct. And he's like, all right, good. Now listen to this. It doesn't sound right, does it? And I'm like, if you say it doesn't sound right, you know? But it was this, you know, immediate, like, no, it's not right. You hear it? Because this is clashing with this. That's not correct. This, these are the intervals we're working with. This is the center. This is what the orbit's about. And I said, if you say so, if you say so. And, you know, and I remember asking, and I was like, you know, explain it to me more. What is it? He said, well, you know, I'm going to take a motif, and I'm going to continue to develop this motif. And I was like, like Ravel's Bolero? And he was like, mm, sure. Okay, <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right, just, okay, just, just record, and we'll go from there. <laughs> we'll figure it out, you know? Did you know that Henry Threadgill was onto something, I guess? Like, because I feel like he came to this realization kind of late in his life. If you put yourself back in that mindset of this is essentially 1999, 2000, 2001, that's the era of the young lions. You're into people playing standards and trying to reinvent that music. A neoclassical thing. Yeah, ne exactly. That is know. very, like, centered in, around Western concepts of harmony. Right, which... You know, back to kind of what we were saying before about being smarter, you know, I don't know if it's about being more intelligent or whatever, but, you know, my view of that was like, that is, I don't want to say there's a dead end there because I'm not judging anyone who does that or who, where that's where their interests are. I mean, that, that's really, that's beautiful stuff and beautiful music is beautiful music. You know, there's good music and there's bad music. 
but I I'd never had an urge to be like, let me see if I can explore the six thousandth take of on of you know of on Green Dolphin Street. To me, Henry was like the exact opposite of all of that. You know, Henry was just making music and making sounds that were so just starkly original to me. And within the overall view of the AACM, because I think now, 20 years later, it's easy to see Henry more as an individual. Then, and maybe this was just, you know, my perspective or, you know, my level of understanding and education, I still viewed him as a part of AACM. You know, to me, Henry was still AACM. Now Henry's just Henry to me. You know, I don't, I understand he's come out of that and he embodies so much of what the AACM championed, but Henry is Henry, as I think probably all of those people are now, whether it's Wadada or Roscoe. But in 2000, in my head, they were still AACM. Um, and he just sounded so different than all of them. I could hear more similarities between Muha and Roscoe, you know, uh, Roscoe and Wadada, or, or, you know, Wadada and Braxton. They're, to me, I can kind of look and see a little bit more where their lines were intersecting. Henry, to me, was just, you know, who is this guy? Where did this come from? You know, what are these, what are these sounds? To answer your question directly, did I, did I know he was onto something? I just sort of knew that out of anyone out there, that was the guy that I wanted to, again, just spend five nights in a row, two sets every night, sitting at the knitting factory one week a year to just soak it up. And sitting there with a tape recorder, you know, I mean, I still have these tapes that I made on like my Sony tape deck, you know, sitting there with my little crappy microphone because it came around once every 52 weeks. And, you know, it was like the most nourishing thing for my ears and my soul, it, uh, it just—it was just the most exciting music, and that—that's music that's never been documented. I mean, you're talking years of make and move gigs where those uh, those compositions never got recorded. Uh, Henry Threadgill's music has this way to separate yourself from your body and make you realize you're alive in a moment and take you outside of yourself and then you don't even realize you're am I am I listening to music like what is happening I don't know how better to describe it but it's kind of like he, he taps into some kind of metaphysical channels where I feel then I like I'm hallucinating <laughs> to a certain degree. that's great well I mean the music sometimes doesn't feel real to me I mean, because it's it's so out of the ordinary it's really like nothing else there's so many layers of things to listen for the rhythmic complexity the fact that all those pieces that he now does with Zoid are essentially excuses to have all the musicians play in counterpoint constantly, including the drummer. And yet there's this immense groove that always happens. It's a thing you can dance to if you had five legs, but it's still a groove. He is like understated trance artist, basically. Yeah, I mean, you, <laughs> have, a great to, way to put it, yeah. you have to get into that mind state. Man, once you get into that middle of that groove and you, your body is like moving in a way that has never moved before because nobody else comes up with these sort of weird rhythms. And then he picks up his alto in particular. There's a note that he hits on that horn where he slowly builds up to it, he builds up to it, and there's almost, and then he just nails this note, a kind of a high note that just like, oh, and just pierces you, bam, like hits you in the face. I mean, it's like every show I'm waiting for that moment. You mentioned earlier when you started Pirate Recordings 20 years ago, sort of was in 
maybe the crescendo of the young lions. I would almost argue that it was a mature young lions. Yeah. When, yeah. when it was releasing one album a month on Sony Columbia, it was kind of coming to an end. They were sort of like, how the hell do we get out of this? Let's put out an album a month. It was crazy. But also in the backdrop, this time period, a lot of stuff was happening in the early 2000s. The Bad Plus, their whole like jazz rock thing, getting back onto Columbia, which was kind of like, you know, Henry Thuringer leaves Columbia, the Bad Plus replaces him, which has comes with its own kind of baggage. We have the Nora Jones thing, the jazz country thing coming strong on the Blue Note label. And then the seeds of Robert Glasper being developed in New York City at that time. Mm-hmm. A mood was recorded around that period in 2002. At that time, too, it was like Jason Moran was the only person that occupied the quote-unquote experimental wing mm-hmm. of the jazz party. And so here you are, Seth. You're like, what can I do to service the music with this happening around me? Yeah, you know, my instincts were to document this music that just wasn't being represented elsewhere. And I don't know that it, it's, it's tough to say now in retrospect, I don't know that representation of jazz or, you know, creative music on major labels. I don't know that I knew then that it was going to fade away. Cause again, I'm, I'm not being sarcastic. Went at one point had an album out every month on Columbia, I think for like 11 months straight. Um, and I think it was to end essentially his Columbia deal. It's like Columbia liquidating their jazz contracts. Yeah, exactly. It's that great day where Mingus goes and everyone goes. Yeah, everyone. You got Which the basically greatest. means it's like the beginning of the end. Exactly. It's like the, it's like the record label apocalypse before right. your eyes. I don't know that I could, in all honesty, say that I I realized that, but. Um, you know, Osby's still on Blue Note, so that's happening, you know what I mean? Osby's there and he's doing stuff. It didn't feel like there was anybody, or at least any American label, investing energy really specifically in the AACM. You really got me thinking of how much you helped the careers of a Muhal Richard Abrams, of a Roscoe Mitchell, of a Henry Threadgill. Cecil Taylor really didn't get his due until later on, right? Yeah, yeah. You guys were putting in the legwork so that Henry could get the Pulitzer. I know you guys are modest, but yeah, no, I think I think I think you and I were always pretty comfortable with the idea that this is what we want to do, and win or lose, whatever you consider win or lose, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what we give a shit about, you know. And if you don't dig it, that's fine. This is where we're at, you know. It's a family radio show, by the way. That's um, no, that, that's what we wanted to do. You know, that's what we want to do. But listen, to be completely fair, really, really, you know, to be really, really, really fair, we've had it really good. You know, from, the, from very early on, what we did was acknowledged, written about, accepted in a way. I don't know if it was accepted early on the way we wanted it to be, to be accepted. But yeah, kind of from jump, you know, we had people saying like, wow, good job. Good job, good job, good job. And that kind of momentum kept growing. And so it kind of gave us a like, oh, okay, we're not the only ones who think this needs to be done. I mean, speaking as an outsider in 2001, 2002, you know, I knew nothing about the music industry. I'm coming off a career in finance and, you know, casting about for something else to do with my life. And, um, you know, and I'm in Tower Records looking at these CDs from Henry Threadgill on Pi Recordings. And I'm thinking, what the hell is Pi Recordings? You know, because you think, you know, if you're an outsider, you think, well, someone like Pi, someone like like Henry, ought to be recording for Sony Columbia or some, you know, major label. I thought these were bootlegs. You know, what are these things? You know, and um, 
and then not soon thereafter, Pi put out a uh, Roscoe Mitchell album, which I also purchased. This is right up my alley in terms of the music that I love. And I'm very curious at this point, you know, what in the world is this label? And kind of did a little bit of research and uh, ended up calling Seth out of the blue. I found his name, I, I knew his name obviously from the liner notes. And I think I reached out to him because I looked up his name in the phone book and I actually called him up. And we had a good conversation, and we met at a bar, and we drank for hours. And, you know, we talked about the music that we liked, and we got along pretty well, mostly because we were drunk. And, uh, and that's how it all got started. You know, it was just, I, I was just a fanboy. And, you know, and, and, you know, this fascinated me that this was possible. It was possible for some dude to actually start a label and started off with two Henry Threadgill albums. And I think in one of those early conversations, uh, Seth said to me, you know, I've been talking to Roscoe about maybe doing an art ensemble of Chicago record. He, he said that he was interested in, in bringing back the art ensemble because Joseph Jarman, who had not been in the group for, I think at that point, maybe a decade. So, you know, and Jarman was, and Roscoe was talking about Jarman rejoining the band and was going to return to being a, a, a quartet. And I was sold. I said, are you kidding me? I mean, as a fan of the music, I mean, as a fan of this music, my dream came true very early on back in 2003 when I joined the label, or 2002 when I joined the label and started to work with Seth so that we could put out the, the, that art ensemble record in Did you ever see Art Ensemble at its peak with all the wardrobe and 100 instruments on stage? Did you ever see that? I did not. I have. I have. I saw them at the Great Hall a Cooper Union with the full band. But yeah, I probably saw them a handful of times. But, but only one time. And you were whole. sober? <laughs> I was absolutely sober for the that that original art ensemble gig. I mean, I was looking so forward to that. I remember the one at the Cooper Union. It still blew my mind. It's just Lester did some out of left field crazy stuff. The beauty of that band for me was always like it. it you just never knew where it was gonna go. I mean, because these are five completely different people. They had their stage thing that they do. But really, it felt like the whole thing could sort of fall apart at any moment. You know, I've gotten to know these guys a little bit over the years, and, and they're very, very different personalities. But there's a, there's a volatility there in, in that band. You know, it's not a smooth running machine. It is, these guys can pull this thing in any direction, and some of these guys may not be that excited about going in that direction. So it's one of those concerts where it felt like there's danger in the air. It's funny that they're, you know, kind of the flagship band for the AACM, because I, I think what Yulon says is right. You know, the, 
There's no reason to think at any given moment Moye loves the direction that Roscoe wants to bring it. And there's certainly no reason to think that Roscoe agrees with Moye at any given moment. I mean, I'm speaking present tense now. I can only, I think, I think Malachi was kind of a very good diplomat, you know, for those guys. Like, everyone, come on, you know. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all really just about creating space for the other person. And, you know, within that space, the other person has the right to say, yeah, I think I'm done with this at this moment. Stop, you know, and it's... And that's very much ASM. Hail we now sing joy for the mighty Dharma King, for the one who shows the way to the spirit of love we share. Hail we now sing joy for the mighty warrior, for the one who stops and holds all the elements of despair. Hail we now sing joy for the mighty humankind, for the one who knows the way to enlightenment.
the mighty Dharma King, for the one who shows the way to the spirit of love we share. Hail, we now sing joy for the mighty warrior, for the one who stops and holds all the elements of despair. Hail, we now sing joy for the mighty humankind, for the ones who know the way to enlightenment is fair. Hail, we now sing joy. Joseph Jarman, we miss you. He was the composer of that tune and on the meeting from 2003 when Yulin joined the Pi Recordings team. It just so ironically or coincidentally worked out that you called your label Pi Recordings, the, the sort of math jazz connotation, and you have like this incredibly like complicated, beautiful equation sounding music. One time, I think I said something tantamount to that to Henry, and he said, my music's not mathematical. And I was like, oh, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. And I, I got backed into a corner. And then later he said, pie, pie is good. I like pie, cherry pie, apple pie. I said, no, <laughs> not like that, not like that, you know, but it's worked out. It's like, we're past that, we're past that. But why did you call it pie recordings? Just the idea that, you know, it's a number that continues to grow on itself and evolve without ever repeating itself and that there's no discernible pattern. And to me, I was like, well, that's what music should be, whether it's this music or any music. It doesn't ever need to repeat itself. It continue just building and building and building. And it's just one thing that goes out forever. Back in 2006, you guys are at it, making a little cultural history again. Yeah. Muhal Richard Abrams, his 80th birthday, or coming out with Sound Dance. Right off the heels of George Lewis publishing his incredible book, and for the very first time, Muhal Richard Abrams recording with Fred Anderson, also a member of the AACM, has known Muhal for over 50 years, yet has never recorded together you do this, I mean, amazing, right? Like To me, that's like the most fulfilling part of the work, right? Yeah, you're just sure. you're just additive to the cultural history of this community, right? Yeah. No, I think I remember saying to you on this, this is the album of the year. Like, we've done it. We've documented some <laughs> Like, if jazz is about, if jazz is about documenting things, we've done it. We've documented, yeah, it was not album of the year. But anyway, you know, yeah. I remember feeling that same thing, like we did it. Working with Muha was just, you know, if it felt like in 2003 working with the Art Ensemble of Chicago was like the pinnacle, um, then working with Muha, you know, a few years later than that, after that, was, if there was another pinnacle, that was the next pinnacle. You know, it's just so much respect for that man, uh, so much love for that man. And, and it wasn't, wasn't easy. I mean, I think that if you talk to any of the people who are, know these guys, they'll tell you, Man, those early AACM cats are hard guys. They are inscrutable, they are stubborn, they are tough. And you can definitely sense when you get to know these guys that there is an edge, there's a tough edge because of the way these guys grew up. Um, I'm sure that for a lot of these guys, their parents uh, came up in the South, probably during the Jim Crow era to settle in Chicago. 
And, um, you know, these are guys who spent, you know, are great musicians, but in Chicago, uh, the opportunities were not available to them to do the music that they really wanted to do. There were plenty of gigs to do blues gigs and plenty of gigs to do, um, you know, straight uh, bebop gigs. But, you know, they wanted something different. And I th- and and I know from talking to many of them that, you know, the general feeling is, listen, just because we're not white and we don't teach at Harvard doesn't mean that we don't know this music and we can't produce our own music. And there's something just so empowering about what they did. You know, if these guys can do it. You know, we can all do it. Self-determination obviously is a theme within the African-American diaspora, the history, within the music, of course. But... Is there a, almost a special kind of self-determination that was happening within the AACM that separates it from other self-deterministic communities? Well, even, I think, within the, 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 the music community in Chicago, uh, you know, a lot of which is black, African-American, um, these guys were iconoclasts within even that world. So it wasn't even just, you know, like there were no opportunities available to them. It's that they looked at other opportunities. You know, it seemed like the, 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 their career paths were already prescribed to them. This is what you do. You're black. You're from the South Side. This is what you do. And these guys basically said, you know what? That's not all that I am. So it's kind of like punk rock. Hey, you know, in some ways, yeah. I mean, it's that DIY thing, right? And they said, you know what? If nobody else is going to hire us to do this, we'll do it ourselves. Yeah, so, I mean, getting back to what I was saying before, I mean, these guys have an edge. Guys like Muhal, in the beginning, there's a level of distrust. Seth and I had to basically fight for years to overcome. For years? Yeah, I think for years. How did you earn his trust? My main recollection of those early days with Muhal was, he, you know, he, he had this thing where he would always say to almost Everything that I suggested, he would, his response would be, well, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> and I mean, it literally felt like some days it was, could be, hey, Muhal, the weather's beautiful today, right? And the response would be, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> and it was a number of years before that went away. I think that there was one mixing session that I did with him where the levels were clearly off and the recording engineer that we were working with, you know, kind of just went along with it. And I said, the levels drop off. I can hear you pounding on the keyboard, but the volume is way off. Something is wrong. And, you know, and Muhal kind of fought with me about it until I said, you know, you have to sit down, just have to sit down, we have to listen. And we sat down and we listened, and I think, and then he, he heard it, and he said, oh, you're absolutely right. And I think from that moment, I think he was always after that, always complimentary. He said, you know, Yulin's got great ears. After that, I want to say that we became very good friends. Um, he started to really open up with me, and really, you know, we could have normal conversations where he wasn't skeptical of just about everything that I was saying. Remember, all these stories about the bad record labels going back in the history of jazz. All these guys have heard those stories before. 
guys getting paid, you know, with drugs. The worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. I mean, the fact, you know, the, the you know, you, you, everything is one take, you know, on the cheapest tape possible where the label takes the publishing and, and you know, essentially you're just getting paid with, with the drugs for the day. I mean, all those stories, these guys know all that stuff. So obviously these guys are going to be skeptical. I think a lot of it became our reputation among other musicians. It's the musicians that we were dealing with. It's the level of the music that we're dealing with. Somehow reputation just started to precede us in any of our dealings. And that made all the difference in the world. And, you know, the, the culmination of all of that was when he passed away. And, uh, you know, we were just honored to be asked by the family. It was, a, it was not one of these major public events. It was really just the invited uh, members of the AACM small, close-knit community where the people who were invited to Mulhouse Memorial. And Seth and I were like, oh, we're just happy to be invited. And then... Peggy and Risharda, his wife and daughter, said, you know, asked us to actually speak. And, you know, like we looked at looking at the program and it's Henry Threadgill, Roscoe Mitchell, Elon Wang, Seth Rosner, and then and then Anthony Braxton. Like, what? <laughs> We're not worthy. I mean, literally, I was like, no, we can't do that. We're not worthy. But it was, it was such, such an incredible honor. And that, that's, you know, that's a trust that we ended up building with, with, with that family. What would you say? Everybody else was super short and pithy. But I know Roscoe talked about the rehearsal basement that they worked in in Chicago. Everybody was very, very short and to the point. Seth and I, because we are who we are, went on and on and on and on. <laughs> I do remember one thing that I talked about, which was... Um, uh, we talked about a little bit about art, uh, about the uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center, the NEA. Um, the NEA Jazz Masters before. And when he won the NEA Jazz Masters, he actually had Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra perform one of his pieces, which I thought was absolutely amazing. And he is not somebody who, uh, Muhal is not somebody who um, takes shortcuts and some of his music is super complicated. But you know what? Those guys are crack musicians, and those guys nailed it. He could have easily been shown up and you know as part of the ceremony and said, "Hey, Muhal, why don't you play for three minutes solo piano and call it a day?" You know, Muhal said, "Uh-uh. You know, we're gonna have the you know we're gonna be in Lincoln Center. We want the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra. We're gonna do one of my pieces," and he did it and he nailed it. And man, if that's not some of the best music I've heard from that group ever, I don't know what is. Let's listen to it. A little bit of this. If we can find it. Muhal Richard Abrams with the Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra. Thank you. 
there are like moments of the label. The relationship with Muhal was a pretty, I think, affirming thing for me and Yulin. If for no other reason than uh, just before he got ill, we were in Rotterdam. The North Sea Jazz Festival. North Sea Jazz Festival. We had a stage there. Wait, Pi Recordings was given a stage by North Sea? Yes. Yeah, we had, we had a stage. Oh, good job. Good job, North Sea. Yeah. Job, North sea. Thank, you. thank you. Yeah, good job, North Sea is right. Thank you, thank you. And Muhal flew out to perform solo. We knew that we wanted to have a, an AACM presence, and, and we reached out to Muhal, and Muhal said he would be glad to do it. Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, he fell ill and could not perform. Uh, so you He was there. Are, yeah, he was there. So you and I are in his hotel room, and... Um, you know, we're sort of trying to gauge the situation, you know, or, you know, how ill are you? Are you ill where you need to stay in the room? And I think at this point in some strange, it, what, it, it wasn't, a, you know, Muho was older, you know, so I think we were sort of like, well, this is not, you know, we're not going to just walk away from this. And so we were like, you know, do you need one of us to stay with you? Do you want to come to the stage and just hang out with us and just be there? And he was like, no, nah, I, I think I got to stay here. I'm not, I'm not feeling it. You know, I'm really not feeling good. And then out of nowhere, you know, he kind of just did this thing where he was like, it was a good night for you guys. You know, this is a good night. And uh, I know this is not easy. And I know that you probably don't feel like you get a tremendous amount of recognition or it's not happening the way you think it's supposed to happen. But, you know, you keep going. You keep doing what you're doing. You guys are making a difference. This, this, this is real what you're doing. And I remember crying. I remember being like, this is nuts, man. Like, you know, you do what you do. You keep moving forward. And uh, what you're doing is right. You know, and we were like... I mean, I, I certainly began crying. It, yeah, it was crazy. So you guys knew from the get that you guys were going to be dealing with quote-unquote serious music, but did you ever realize that it would become this highbrow? I don't know if it's highbrow. Is it really? I mean, is it... Highbrow in the sense of you need a lot of exposition sometimes. Mm. What you expect from your audience to come to the table just to interact with the artifact. I hear what you're saying. But this is the challenge that, that Seth and I have laid out for ourselves, right? We're, we're making cutting edge music. Um, and this is what we embrace. In some ways it's jaded the way we listen to music um, because now we are always after the sound of surprise. You sort of that thing that people talk about with jazz, but really surprised. Um, in some ways, if you just kind of bring us some stuff that sounds great, it's not enough. You know, I don't, frankly, I don't know how these guys are gonna top themselves, but they always top themselves. Uh, that's the amazing thing about this set of characters that we deal with, is they always seem to top themselves. Um, this is a challenge that Seth and I have, uh, have laid out for ourselves. We put out challenging music, on the artist's terms, it's our job to get people to listen. It's our job for people to get people to listen in a way so that they feel like, you know what, I now understand something better than I did before I listened to this. Um, because I think we do know that, you know, we don't have a, hardly anything we ever do has a nice backbeat. Where it's just, you know what, we can lounge back and suck on a cognac and uh, chill. You know, it's not that music. But if you're willing to put in a little bit of work, if you're willing to at least sit even through one track and listen for that thing that we're asking for you to listen to, and you hear it, it opens up your ears 
and it opens up your ability to listen in the future for everything you listen to. And that's what we're look, always looking to do. That's our challenge. Again, I would like to thank Yulun Wang, Seth Rosner for their time and their efforts just putting in all that work, showcasing all of the fabulous sounds on Pi Recordings and the many other artists that we didn't get a chance to mention. Mark Rabot, Jonathan Finlayson, Miles Okazaki, Dan Weiss, David Vareas. Actually, you know what? Just go to their website, pirecordings.com, and you can check out their full roster of music. And if you follow us, please do so on Twitter. At Checkout Jazz is our handle. We also have a Facebook page. Give us a five-star review if you subscribe to the podcast, which we hope you do. The Checkout is a production of WBGO Studios. I'm Simon Ratner. Thanks for checking us out.